Machiavelli said to Mephistopheles one day, did you hear the one about the cop that got away, took a life for free while it all went off in the city, sat at home on full pay, and his future's looking pretty, John Charles Dimenages, Ian Tomlinson, Blair Peach, the killers rest in places where the law will never reach, but here comes justice fighting on his feet, who's gonna take the rap? Who's gonna take the rap? Won't someone tell me please? I'm sick of hearing all this crap. Who's gonna take the rap? Who's gonna take the rap? Won't someone tell me please? I'm sick of hearing all this crap. Hello and welcome to episode two of MAP, a Melbourne anarchist podcast. In this fortnight's episode, I will rant a bit about the budget. Talk to Kelly from the Homeless Persons Union of Victoria, and then introduce a surprise new segment that may or may not be filler. The more attentive among you may have noticed that it's been a bit more than a fortnight since the last episode. Uh, This is the point at which you would insert some kind of bad joke about anarchists and organisation. But hey, I'm not going to go there. Instead, uh, let's talk a bit about the budget. Last week we saw the federal budget. I haven't read the budget papers in depth, I can't purport to offer you an analysis of the budget as a whole, but there are a couple of areas of personal interest that I want to briefly comment on. The Liberals, of course, are calling this budget an economic plan for jobs and growth. As listeners of this podcast are no doubt aware by now, apparently the key to jobs and growth amounts to tax cuts for the rich and forcing the unemployed to work for peanuts. The centrepiece of the jobs component of the government's strategy is a program that will force young people into a 12-week internship in the private sector. They're calling this, uh, what is it, preparation training hire or something like that. Much has been made of the fact, by the left anyway, that these interns will be working for what amounts to approximately $4 an hour. The government's saying uh, that they intend to have about 30,000 young people forced into this quote-unquote internship program, uh, and that by participating in this internship program, not only is there a slight chance a person might get a job out of it, but uh, they'll get an extra 100 bucks a week on their doll payment. It amounts to about $4 an hour for the additional work that the government expects people engaged in this program to be doing. It's also very interesting to note that young people will be doing these internships at businesses for their profit, uh, but the $4 an hour will be covered, of course, by the government. The government envisages these internships will be in low-skilled service and retail sector jobs. The government's budget website uses a supermarket and a cafe as examples of employers who will use the program. There's a whole bunch of things to say about the uh, so-called PATH program, the internships, uh, and why it sucks. Obviously, it involves young unemployed people being forced to work for payments that are so far below the minimum wage, it boggles the mind. The programs will obviously displace regular employment. Businesses will have a significant incentive to churn young people through these 12-week internships rather than hiring permanent or even casual staff at award wages. The program is a de facto expansion of work for the doll into the private sector. The big legitimating myth of the work for the doll program was always that job seekers were slaving away for worthy charities rather than simply being ruthlessly exploited for profit. Interns in the so-called PATH program will of course be working in the private sector. 
the Money for the Path internships is explicitly coming from cuts to the Work for the Doll program. It's also a massive subsidy on business. Employers are receiving significant payments for taking on so-called interns, both for at the start of the program, at the start of the 12 weeks free labour, and, and an even bigger payment at the end. It amounts to like $1,000 if you agree to take on someone and work them for nothing for 12 weeks, and then $10,000 if ever you decide to pay them a wage. You can expect that PATH will become the standard model for new hiring at places like supermarkets. Why hire people off the streets when you can get 12 weeks labour for free, a $1,000 payment for considering someone for a job, and then a $10,000 payment if ever you offer them a job? The PATH program is what the left is talking about when it comes to the 2016 budget, and understandably so. It's such a massive attack on young people and on the unemployed, uh, and it fits nicely, well, it fits into the narrative uh, that was constructed around the 2014 budget and all the problems with that. There are a bunch of other areas of interest worth discussing with this budget. The proposed complete deregulation of university fees has been partially shelved. It should be noted that whilst uh, the government said they're uh, shelving the deregulation of, um, of university fees, uh, that in fact they intend to go ahead with it in some degrees. It's something of a wedge, but I imagine it's designed to take the political heat out of the issue for them. The deregulation of university fees was going to allow universities to charge whatever they wanted for all degrees. The likely result would be substantial fee increases, substantially more debt hanging over students' heads when they graduate, but also substantially more cost to government in administering the HEX program. Obviously, the government ultimately needs the deregulation of university fees in order to progressively cut federal funding to the university sector. And this budget certainly delivers cuts to tertiary education, some $2 billion worth. But the federal government's long-term goal appears to be to pass entirely the cost of tertiary funding onto students in the form of higher fees and move towards a true user-pays tertiary education system. Obviously, their attempts to do this since 2014 have been stymied. Rhetoric around potential $100,000 degrees has been hurting uh, the Liberal Party's image. But the $2 billion cuts to university funding that the federal government has announced will increase the pain for universities, and in doing so, help build the case for future fee increases. Paradoxically, however, the transfer of university funding onto students' backs in the form of higher debts actually increases some of the tertiary education costs experienced by the government. The HEC scheme, uh, or the Higher Education Loan Scheme, or whatever they call it today, actually costs a small fortune to administer, and increases in fees increase the burden of uncollected, tax, of uncollected HEX debts to the government. That's why we've seen ideas like lowering the HEX repayment threshold and the collection of HEX debts from deceased estates. But in the long term, I think the government will tend towards the obvious solution of their apparent problem here. The problem, so to make it very clear, is that the government doesn't want to fund tertiary education as such. What it wants to do is move towards a fully user-pay system, and in order to do that, you need to deregulate fees so that universities can squeeze students. And the more in the short term that you progressively cut tertiary education funding, the more pressure you create from universities for a form of funding, funding any form of funding, and the obvious form of funding, let us squeeze the students some more. 
Like I said, at the moment, ballooning hex debt is a cost to government. Largely, whilst hex debts are indexed to inflation, they don't bear interest. The uncollected hex debts uh, are a cost to the government's budget. The long-term solution for the government, if they want to foist the cost of education entirely onto students, is to introduce hex uh, is to introduce interest payments on hex debts and then sell the debt. It's been mooted before, but what that would basically amount to doing is not only taking the federal government funding role out of tertiary education and foisting the cost onto students, uh, but then creating a massive business opportunity for banking and finance to uh, administer what would be a very profitable debt portfolio. Profitable you know, in particular because uh, with regards to hex debt, students can't escape it from going, uh, by going bankrupt. You can only really escape it by dying or emigrating permanently. So it could be a very profitable form of debt if ever it could be made to bear interest. Another thing that many people on the left have been banging on about are the unfair nature of the income tax cuts that the federal government has announced in the budget. Uh, The income tax cuts obviously favour high-income earners and deliver nothing for anyone on an average wage. But a heck of a lot more interesting story are the cuts that the government intends to bring into the corporate tax rate, and also the expansion of the small business instant asset write-off. The government is trying and failing to inject a bit of stimulus and encourage business investment. The small business asset write-off, for example, cost a fortune last year and had no appreciable economic impact. So the government's expanding the program. (laughs) It'll likely have as much impact this year. The progressive cuts to the corporate tax rate are a much larger measure in terms of the amount of money uh, that the government will not be collecting, but also it's unlikely to have much of an impact on declining rates of business investment. On this topic, uh, Dave Eden had an interesting little blog post up the night before the budget. Uh, I recommend you check it out. He wrote at the time, It is unlikely that the government will be able to break the impasse facing the state a general tendency of slowing growth, rising state debt, and a pool of sullen and largely incohate opposition against the pop- amongst the population to various attempts by the state to address both. A week after they announced the federal budget, I think he's basically right. Check out the post. I'll put a link in the show notes, uh, and it makes for some interesting reading. Uh, Dave also publishes a semi-regular podcast, which I'll also link to in the show notes, uh, and I expect that he'll have more insightful things to say about the budget than I have coming up soon. Up next, we have an interview with Kelly from the Homeless Persons Union of Victoria. Uh, This interview was recorded approximately a week ago at Number 2 Bendigo Street, which is still the subject of an ongoing protest occupation. Okay, I'm with Kelly from the Homeless Persons Union. We're at uh, number two Bendigo Street as part of the ongoing occupation of uh, unoccupied houses owned by the state government. Kelly, it'd be great if you could tell us a bit about what the action is and how it's been going and the issues you've been trying to raise. So the action started because the Homeless Persons Union was informed that four young homeless women were evicted from a property on Bendigo Street, Collingwood, and we suspected that this property was one of the properties that was compulsorily acquired by the um, the Bailiu government when they were planning to build the East-West Link. 
Um, and so initially we were just going to um, make a media release about that to show that this um, empty this property was still empty after um, six months after um, it, uh, there was a big public transfer of 20 of these East West Link properties to Magpie Nest, which is a joint housing program between the Collingwood Football Club and the Salvation Army. So we sought initially to bring attention to the fact that Although they had claimed that they would be housing the homeless in these 20 properties, there was still this empty property sitting idle six months later. Yeah, and that was one of the like big selling points that the Andrews government had uh, trying to cover themselves from the end of the East Westling project, as I understand it. They were like, well, these properties we've compulsorily acquired, uh, we'll house homeless people in them, uh, and it'll all be for good. But when you look at it, if I understand this correctly... 20 houses to a uh, to a community housing charity out of how many were acquired? Oh, you'd have to look that up. I think it was like 130-something residential properties, but that included like a large apartment complex, which I believe is now being privately rented out. That's what kicked off the action. Hmm. Um, but then we realised there was multiple houses on Bendigo Street that were empty, and initially we thought there were six. We've since found out there's more than that. Um, yeah, so initially it was just to um, occupy this one house that the women were evicted from. But yeah, it's continued on from there and become this big campaign to draw attention to the fact that these houses are, are languishing amidst a homeless and housing crisis. Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch uh, the way that you've used this occupation to raise wider issues around homelessness and housing. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, what do we have? At least, and this is probably a conservative estimate, at least 25,000 homeless Victorians. But I think that's 2011 census statistics. So we'll be awaiting the census this year and we'll probably find that it's significantly more than that. And what do we have? 35,000 people languishing on the public housing waiting list. And we can suspect that if the government does not formulate a really good progressive plan for what it intends to do, um, you know, building more public housing stock, these people will probably never acquire a public housing property in their lifetimes. Mm. Some people at this stage are waiting 10 to 20 years. That's just unthinkable. Like, uh, I spent my teenage years in public housing and I just... I just can't imagine what it would be like to be either tenuously housed or in emergency housing or in hotels or on the streets for 10 or possibly 20 years waiting for houses. And housing is a human right, Article 25 of the um, Human Rights, um, United Nations Human Rights, whatever it's called. Yeah, Article 25, housing is a human right. Yeah, although you wouldn't uh, know it when looking at the situation in Victoria at the moment where housing is let's face it, a commodity bought and sold for profit and people's need for housing barely even fits into that equation. And just one last statistic. Uh, statistic: uh, City West Water estimates that there are up to 80,000 empty properties in Greater Melbourne based on their daily uh, water usage estimates. Yeah, yeah estimating the, the rate of vacancy that truly does exist in the housing stock is something of a controversial one because... Uh, more conservative estimates are usually based on real estate agencies' advertised vacancies, and the advertised vacancy rate can be quite low. But when you look at something like water consumption, it's a bit of a giveaway. I mean, people aren't living in houses if no water is being used. And this, this uh, that's been one of the um, great things about this campaign. It has revealed that 
it is a scam when when we are told that there's you know few properties to rent and that raises the prices well actually you know the research has been that has been done has completely revealed what a scam and a lie that is to the Victorian public in the actual fact there's at least up to you know 80,000 properties so we've really blown the lid on yeah. that it's been really interesting to see the way that this occupation has been a platform for raising those issues. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about how the act of occupying uh, one or more of these properties on Bendigo Street has helped build that platform? Uh, well, it's a powerful direct action, I suppose. It, it's it's something different to writing angry letters, you know, to um, government departments um, by 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 participating in an, in an act of civil disobedience and by refusing to leave until the government really comes forward in in addressing um, the homeless and housing crisis. It's, yeah, it's a really powerful um, action to do and I would recommend to anybody to participate in peaceful, uh, direct action. It's kind of it inspires the community. Um, it makes the pub, it makes the um, you know commercial media um, kind of take notice. Um, so, yeah, it's been fantastic. It's also been really interesting to see just the number of people and the diversity of different people who've come through this occupation just to check things out, I think, more than anything else. And in turn, in turn you seem to have been able to use that to communicate something of the issues involved to people. I think the occupation has really had has tapped into a feeling that was just sitting there waiting amongst the community, um, the homelessness crisis. When people walk through um, the Melbourne CBD these days, they're really they're freaked out and they're disturbed. There's so many um, homeless people on the streets, so they know it's a really big problem. We, people know there's a really big problem with the um, housing prices. That's been around for a few years now. So I think this um, action just just tapped into that broader um, anger uh, that the public is feeling about these issues. Mm. You've raised a series of demands from the state government in, in order to try and address the issues of the housing and homelessness crisis. Can you tell us a little bit more about these? So one of them is that we want the empty properties here on Bendigo Street, the ones that were compulsorily acquired for the East-West Link, we want them put on the public housing register and be given to people on that 35,000 public housing waiting list. And we have said that we will happily leave number two Bendigo Street once we can see that the government has done this and the first keys are handed over to someone on that public housing waiting list, which includes homeless people in crisis. Another demand is that we want uh, Minister Foley, to, who's the Minister for Housing and and other things. We want him to come down to 2 Bendigo Street to speak with actual homeless people so he can hear their uh, lived experiences. We want to know what the government is going to do about the 35,000 people on the public housing waiting list and the 25,000 homeless in an environment which sees up to 80,000 properties sitting vacant in Greater Melbourne. And, to, and we want the government to provide um, transparency and accountability on, on these properties. Um, we know that they own them. We want to know who's managing them, what real estates are involved and uh, we also want to know from the Magpie Nest, that joint housing partnership between the Collingwood Football Club and the Salvation Army, we want to know their involvement in these properties, which they have denied having, it, they've denied having any involvement in, but um, mm. we know that's it's, not the case. It's been really interesting to see that. So when Magpie Nest are approached and confronted about the fact that houses 
they are apparently managing, according to the state government, are sitting empty. Uh, they deny any involvement. And then we see the state government saying uh, all these squatters have to leave because they are stopping the handover of these houses uh, to this Magpie Nest project. One of the things that's been really interesting, I think, and one of the issues that you've raised that a lot of people have overlooked for a long time uh, is that these community housing projects like Magpie Nest, like things operated by the Salvation Army, are not the answer that the state government would like to portray them to be. Can you tell us a bit more about what it means, what community housing means as opposed to public housing? So a really good way to uh, get a picture of uh, this is that the term social housing is an umbrella term. And within social housing, that could either refer to public housing or community housing. So when government uses social housing, they're, they're fudging the language. They're not being clear on whether on what kind of housing it is. But public housing is state-owned and state-managed. Uh, your rent is 25% of your income and you have the security of tenure. You'd have to really stuff up really badly to get evicted from your public housing place. Community housing, on the other hand, can be still uh, still state-owned but run by these NGOs and faith-based organisations. And the rent is not capped at 25% of your income, it's 30% or more. Uh, the rent assistance that tenants receive goes straight into the pockets of the organisation. You don't have security of tenure because the management of that property could change, you know, within a year or two years. I think one of the big things that people fail to understand who haven't been uh, homeless or who haven't had that sort of uh, experience of tenuous housing is the importance of security of tenure for really changing things in your life. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that from your experience or from the Homeless Persons Union's point of view? Uh, I don't have any any um, uh, particular or speci specialised um, insight than what the general public um, can understand about that issue. Everybody needs... Um, security of tenure, whatever, whatever's going on in your life. Um, and for people that have been homeless, you know, they have um, some, they can have traumas from the past. Um, you know, they're trying to rebuild their lives. So I guess you're right that, yeah, they do have um, special needs some of the time. And so having that security of tenure is really, really important. The last thing they need is to be told that um, the management of the property is going to change and their rents may change and it just puts stress on their lives that they really don't need. I think back over my own experience and one of the things that was really different about living in public housing, before living in public housing, we'd always had that sort of sense of precariousness about, well, will we be here in three months' time? Will the real estate agent kick us out now? Uh, we're behind on the rent again, or we're having to choose between rent and bills. And will there be a roof over my head, you know, as a young person in six months' time? And the thing that was really transformative about public housing, for all the faults associated with living in something managed by the government, was just that knowledge, A, it was 25% of income, whether I had a low income or a higher income. And B, I was going to be there in six months' time. I could actually start to plan and build something of a life around that. And I, I really feel that in for so many people, for, for people beyond what we think of when we talk about homelessness that sense of hundreds of thousands or even, or even a million people in our city cycling through six-month leases, forever changing properties. I, I don't know why we accept this in our society now. 
Can you tell us a bit more about the Homeless Persons Union, how it came about and what it does? So the Homeless Persons Union, um, it was an idea of um, Spike Chapelloni's actually. Um, he was volunteer. He's had a long-term homeless experience for something like 17 years. He come from a, a pretty broken family with um, mental health issues and substance abuse issues and a poor family. And, um, you know, he had to get out of that house at 17 and, and because of the trauma he experienced from his childhood, it saw him um, having precarious housing for the majority of his life, you know, living in rooming houses, squatting, sometimes living on the streets until he got public housing. Public housing he got when he was about 38 or 40 years old and that really gave him the security to um, start rebuilding his life. So he was volunteering at a... Um, homelessness service in town and he saw the way that the um, homeless people were treated in that service and he thought it was really poor and that the homeless people should have some union that stands up for them because there is there was nothing that existed before that time so it was this great idea and we called a public meeting in September 2014 so the, it's been going since then about 18-19 months or something and so it's basically um, um, organised by people who have had a lived experience of homelessness or just those people who really care about the issues. And it's to give homeless people a platform to express their views and their lived experiences instead of um, them having them um, filtered or edited by um, homelessness services, a direct voice. Okay, uh, thank you very much for joining me today, Kelly. The action down here at 2 Bendigo Street is ongoing. Do you have any final words? Not really, Kieran. Thank you very much for having me speak. Welcome to a new segment. For want of a better name, I'm going to call this The Reading Group. The premise is pretty simple. I'm going to read out a brief extract from a piece of anarchist writing and offer a few thoughts as to why it's relevant. The more cynical amongst you might suggest that this was a very lazy way for me to pad out this uh, podcast episode. Today's extract is from an article with something of an odd history. It floats about the internet attributed to Enrico Malatesta, uh, but it's not in fact a single piece of Malatesta's writing. It's a chapter from Vernon Richards' Malatesta Life and Ideas, and it is in fact a collection of extracts from Malatesta's writings uh, on the topic of reformism assembled by Vernon Richards. According to Richards' footnotes, the source material by Malatesta was variously written uh, in various newspaper articles between 1920 and 1924. Anyway, here is an extract from a compilation of extracts of Enrico Malatesta's writings, on the subject of reformism. In the course of human history, it is generally the case that the malcontents, the oppressed, and the rebels, before being able to conceive and desire radical change in the political and social institutions, restrict their demands to partial changes, to concessions by the rulers, and to improvements. Hopes of obtaining reforms, as well as in their efficacy, precede the conviction that in order to destroy the power of a government or of a class, it is necessary to deny the reasons for that power, and therefore to make a revolution. In the order of things, reforms are then introduced, or they are not, and once introduced, either consolidate the existing regime, or undermine it, assist the advent of revolution, or hamper it, and benefit or harm progress in general, depending on their specific characteristic, the spirit in which they've been granted, and above all, the spirit in which they are asked for, claimed, 
or seized by the people. Governments and the privileged classes are naturally always guided by instincts of self-preservation, of consolidation, and the development of their powers and privileges. And when they consent to reforms, it is either because they consider that they will serve their ends, or because they do not feel strong enough to resist and give in, fearing what might otherwise be a worse alternative. The oppressed either ask for and welcome improvements as a benefit graciously conceded, recognise the legitimacy of the power which is over them, and so do more harm than good by helping to slow down or divert, and perhaps even stop the processes of emancipation. Or instead they demand and impose improvements by their action, and welcome them as partial victories over the class enemy, using them as a spur to greater achievements, and thus they are a valid help and a preparation to the total overthrow of privilege that is for the revolution. A point is reached where the demands of the dominated class cannot be acceded to by the ruling class without compromising their power. Then, the violent conflict inevitably occurs. It is not true to say, therefore, that revolutionaries are systematically opposed to improvements, to reforms. They oppose the reformists, on the one hand because their methods are less effective for securing reforms from governments and employers, who only give in through fear, and on the other hand because very often the reforms they prefer are those which not only bring doubtful immediate benefits, but also serve to consolidate the existing regime and to give the workers a vested interest in its continued existence. Interesting stuff. The questions of reform or reformism have been a point of dispute amongst anarchists since the beginning of the anarchist political tradition. There are innumerable struggles for reform all about us. How should anarchists relate to these struggles? If we do engage with these struggles, what sorts of demands for change should we advocate? And does engaging with the struggle for this or that reform involve accepting the legitimacy of the state? Should we reject all half-measures and hold out for the maximum demand of the overthrow of the state and capitalism now? Malatesta argues, and rightly I think, that we should definitely seek to relate to the struggle for reform, but that we should do so critically. We should engage in the struggle for reforms because that is where the most militant components of society are presently engaged. The alternative, rejecting all struggles for reform, involves walling anarchism off from all potential audiences for anarchist ideas. We should engage in the struggle for reforms because struggle can teach political lessons, as well as develop skills and widen solidarity. If we refuse to engage in the struggles that exist now, those struggling will likely pay no heed to any argument we might advance and will likely develop other, decidedly non-anarchist ideas, attitudes and practices as a result. The critical element about our engagement in any campaign or in any struggle for any reform has to do with how a struggle for reform is conducted and framed. Does a campaign beg benevolence from on high, or does it raise a demand and attempt to apply force in order to extract a concession? Does demand for this or that change result in a weakening of the power of the bosses in the state, or, if conceded, would it strengthen their position? Does a particular campaign or demand contribute to building counterpower against capital in the state, 
or does it buttress the position of the existing order? These are all live questions that confront anarchists all the time in all places, and most definitely in Melbourne today. Well, they're questions that confront any anarchist serious about engaging in politics in the real world. Far too many brush these issues aside and do little more than sit in a state of self-righteous apathy, dreaming of the outbreak of a revolution that they intend to do little, if anything, to build. What do you think about these issues? What are the campaigns today that anarchists should be relating to? And are the thoughts uh, that Malatesta advanced that relevant? The complete chapter on reformism from Vernon Richards' Malatesta Life and Ideas uh, will be posted with the show notes. I'd be very keen to hear what you think. Thank you for tuning in to this episode two of MAP. Show notes for episode two will be available at kieransreview.com. The intro music for this episode was Who's Gonna Take the Rap by Cosmo. Uh, A link to Cosmo will be provided in the show notes. Stay tuned for details of episode three. I'm not entirely sure when I hope to have it released, uh, based on my work and study schedule, of course. Uh, But to stay in touch and for updates, you can like Kieran's Review on Facebook or follow at Kieran Bennett on Twitter. Hope to hear from you soon. Sentiment is Stoffelies one day. Did you hear one about the cop that got away? Took a life for free while it all went off in the city. Sat at home on full pay, and his future's looking pretty. John Charles Dominages, Ian Tomlinson, Blair Peach. The killers rest in places where the law will never reach. But here comes justice fighting on his feet. Who's gonna take the rap? Who's gonna take the rap? Someone tell me please, I'm sick of hearing all this crap Who's gonna take the rap? Who's gonna take the rap? Well, someone tell me please, I'm sick of hearing all this crap Mephistopheles said, man, you couldn't make this up they deserve to win the cup The boys in blue don't need us And our black hearts to survive Machiavelli gave a smile Both of them high-fived John Charles Dermanages Ian Tomlinson, Blair Peach The killers rest in places Where the law will never reach But here comes justice Fighting on his feet Who's gonna take the rap? Who's gonna take the rap? Won't someone tell me please I'm sick of hearing all this crap Who's gonna take the rap? Who's gonna take the rap? Won't someone tell me please? I'm sick of hearing all this crap. Deadly deafening war. It might take a lifetime, but it's taken lives already. 
Set a course for justice, solidarity, hold steady. John Charles Dimonasia's seeing Tomlinson bland peach. The killers rest in places where the law will never reach. But here comes justice fighting on its feet. Who's gonna take the rap? Who's gonna take the rap? Someone tell me please, I'm sick of hearing all this crap Who's gonna take the rap? Who's gonna take the rap? Well someone tell me please, I'm sick of hearing all this crap Who's gonna take the rap? Who's gonna take the rap? Well someone tell me please, I'm sick of hearing all this crap Who's gonna take the rap? Who's gonna take the rap? Well someone tell me please, I'm sick of hearing all this crap 